is Ed, Ed and Madeline come out to read our text. I thought I would just, sometimes these passages in the book of Revelation, uh, they can be a little bit lengthy, and there's so many images and so much back and forth that sometimes it's really hard just to listen to it. So I thought I would just clue you in just on a few things, maybe just the structure of the text before we actually dive in, just maybe to help you listen. Uh, the text itself, it's a judgment against the city of Babylon, right? and we'll talk all about that. Um, but you're going to see, basically, here's what you want to listen for. You're going to see in the beginning a pronouncement of judgment from the angel, right? And then you're going to hear three laments, right? A lament from the kings of the earth, a lament from the merchants, a lament from the seafarers, right? Or the shipmasters. And then you're going to come back and you're going to get one more final picture of, uh, of, of judgment, uh, a symbolic action followed by this description of what judgment is leaving, um, for Babylon. Okay? So just a couple of clues as you as we listen. Today's reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth, who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon. For in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste, and all shipmen 
seamasters and seafarer men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they, and they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon be the great city, be thrown down with violence, and will be thrown and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeteers will be heard in her no more, and craftsmen of any craft will be found in her no more. And the sound of the mill will be found in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of a bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and all who have been slain on earth." The reading of God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. All right, everybody doing well? Surviving all things, holidays and whatnot. Hey, you know, one thing we, we often talk about, you know, as we approach the Christmas season, when you think about the biblical Christmas story, right, try as we will, try as we might to make it a quaint, cute, cozy, comfortable little story, right? Angels appearing to shepherds in the rolling hills outside of Bethlehem. A cute little baby born in a manger with this nice couple around them and some cute animals, you know, all quietly singing. Right? Try as we might to make that cute and a cuddly little story. Like, if you actually just broaden out, or if you just, like, zoom out on the story, it, it doesn't work. It defies that. It's actually a very tumultuous story. Like, for instance, it's a story of oppression, Right, the whole reason Mary and Joseph are in Bethlehem is because Caesar Augustus has decided to call for a census. And why is he calling for a census? Right, because he wants to make sure that every last person of all the territories that his empire has conquered is accounted for so that he can squeeze every last dime of taxation from them. Right? Or if you zoom out a little bit further too, you, right, you see it's a story that's embedded in this broader story of a maniacal lust for power and violence, right? You got Herod, who's sort of the local king in Jerusalem, and when he finds out that there's a potential rival king that's born in Bethlehem, man, now he starts to scheme and connive a way to take that child out, so much so that Mary and Joseph, they've got to flee their homeland, they've got to head down and live as exiles in Egypt. And then, of course, when Herod finds that he's been duped and he never finds, you know, or he can't find this child, he goes on this murderous rampage and orders the execution, the massacre of every child two years and under in Bethlehem and the surrounding neighborhoods. You know, or even the one that always gets me, like you zoom into the center and, and you read and you listen to the song that Mary sings when she hears from the angel that she's going to have a child, and this child is going to inherit the king or the throne of her father David, and his kingdom will know no end. 
Right? And you maybe expect that Mary's going to sing a song like our worship choruses, which celebrate the mercy of God, the reconciliation that we have between God, and eternal life and salvation that's offered as a result. But then you read it, and it's not, it's not really any of that. Right? It's actually a revolutionary song in a way. She says, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior, because he has considered the humble estate of his servant and has done great things for me. And she goes on to say how he has revealed the strength of his arm, and he has scattered the proud and brought down the mighty off of their thrones. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. I remember last time we sang that kind of worship chorus in our, in our worship service around here on a Sunday morning. Right? Again, this is just, we just sang, um, it came upon a midnight clear, and I actually like that. It's one of my, it's a great song to sing during Advent because there's that middle verse that talks about above its sad and lowly plains, right? These angels sing with their wings unfurled, and above all its babble sounds, the blessed angels sing. Right? It's this reminder that you see in the Christmas story that actually when you zoom out, <laughs> this all occurs in a world that is just kind of broken and messed up. And it's a dark place full of oppression, maniacal lust for power, violence, greed. Right? And what you have in the, in the Christmas story, right? This, the story about this child who is God in the flesh, who has left the glories of heaven to come invade this dark and broken world, is that God is not okay with that. God is not okay that systems of oppression and injustice and the forces of power and greed and loss like wreak havoc in his creation. He's not okay with that. Nor is he content to just hand his creation over to these enemies of his, right? But in the birth of Christ, this operation is underway where God is going to reclaim his creation and restore it and purge from the goodness of his creation, right? These systems of oppression and injustice, these power schemes, right? All of this stuff that wreaks havoc in his creation. Like, that's, that's, that's what the Christmas story is all about. It's not this just quaint, cozy thing. And the reason I highlight that, partly because we're in the Advent season where we're reflecting on that, but also because I think that as you see that and you remember that, like, that will help you make some sense of what's going on in our passage today, okay? We're coming into the end of the book of Revelation, right? This great book full of apocalyptic, symbolic images. And the last three chapters, really, we've been centered on this judgment that is about to fall, the city of Babylon, right? And we've had a couple different angles in on what this judgment symbolically is going to look like. Like two weeks ago, it came in the form of plagues that were reminiscent of the plagues in Egypt, Right, which demonstrated God's power and his supremacy over the gods that we tend to bow down and worship. Or last week, the judgment took the form of, you know, all that the city, you know, the kings of the earth and even the beast himself, everyone that the city had allied itself with turn on the city and they burn the city alive and they devour the city. Right? And this week, kind of like the symbolic action is the angel taking that giant millstone, right? These massive stones that they would roll over top of, you know, harvested wheat, right? To grind it down to the grain and to the flour, right? This angel takes this massive millstone and just chucks it into the heart of the sea. And as the stone sinks to the bottom, 
in little to no time at all, so is going to be the fall of this mighty city of Babylon. Okay. Okay, and of course we want to remember uh, Babylon here. It's a symbol. Uh, I can remember when I was a kid, uh, uh, my family, we went to some Christian bookstore. And as I, I couldn't have been that old, maybe six or seven years old, but I can remember, no, it was probably a little old, I don't know, whatever it was. But we were walking around, and I can remember this one book caught my eye. And it was a book that had a picture of uh, Saddam Hussein on it, and then King Nebuchadnezzar. And it was a book that was basically saying, look, we are approaching the end times because it's Saddam Hussein's intention to rebuild the fallen city of Babylon just the way Nebuchadnezzar had built it. Right, And there it is, sign that we're moving towards the rebuild of the city of Babylon, which will then be judged and destroyed. Uh, and again, as we've been saying all along, that might be a great book for, uh, I don't know why it caught my eye. I thought, wow, that's interesting. Maybe we're headed towards the end times, you know, whatever. But uh, as we've been talking about here, it's my perspective that that's not doing the text justice and not letting the text speak on its own terms, not letting apocalyptic literature be apocalyptic literature and give us symbols. Right, so this great city of Babylon, it's a symbol of cities, nations, empires, villages, ways of life, right, throughout history that essentially exalt themselves as the, as the thing of supreme importance. They have no interest in honoring the creator or giving credence to his intentions for his creation, they really have no desire to even acknowledge the fact that he still has ownership rights over his creation. And so they live life exalting themselves and living in hot pursuit of all their passions and desires. And they normalize this. That's what Babylon does. Babylon normalizes this, takes this activity of exalting yourself, living in pursuit of your passions, ignoring whatever intentions or purposes the creator might have, and saying, and this is what life is all about. This is the good life. This is where you find your comfort. This is where you find your security. This is where you find life to the full. Right? And so again, if you're in the ancient church, and you're reading this letter, 99% of you, are, you're going to associate Babylon with the Roman Empire. I say, yep, that pretty much describes this empire that I'm living in. Right, but if we could go through and we could look at all the specific judgment scenes in here, I could show you how they're actually quotations from various judgment scenes in the Old Testament where major cities are being judged, whether it's the city of Tyre, whether it's the city of Babylon, or whether it's the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right, This passage is borrowing from those judgment scenes, basically to say that this is pronouncement of judgment on any city, on any nation, on any culture, civilization, village, town, home that lives out this form of worldliness, of exalting itself above the Creator, not giving to Him any honor, living in full pursuit of their own passions and desires, and normalizing that life, making that attractive and appealing and seductive. And so this morning, as we talk through this chapter, like what you're going to see is there's really not so much an emphasis on the mechanics of the just judgment like there was maybe in the plague narrative. This one is more a description of the city or more a description of why this city particularly arouses God's judgment. Right? And so that's what we're going to just talk through. Like, What do we see about this city of Babylon such that we can be somewhat cautious about that? And there's basically three things I want to highlight. Uh, first of all, is the most obvious one, is that uh, this is a city 
living in decadence, right? This is a city that is living to the hilt in glamour and luxury and wealth and splendor, right? As the text would say in numerous places, uh, this verse 7, she glorified herself and she lived in luxury, Right, or this is the city that's intoxicating and seducing the kings and the merchants and the seafarers with her power of her luxurious living. Or this is the city, as it describes, where the, the longing of her soul is for delicacies and splendors. Where? In verse 16, uh, she looks just like the prostitute from last week that was riding on top of the beast. Right? She's clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet. Uh, purple and scarlet, that was the that was the, the clothing, the colors of royalty or colors of the really rich and elite, right? Because like it's not like today's where you can just go out and you can go to the store and buy some purple dye or whatever, squeeze it on your thing, make a nice tie-dye shirt or whatever. Like back then, to get purple dye, you had to, I mean, it's quite the process. You had to harvest like thousands and thousands of these little sea snails and you had to like Squeeze them. <laughs> so this juice comes out, and they had to like boil that juice down, and somehow in that whole process, out would come this purple dye, right? Which then you could take and you could make into fabric and then clothing. But right, the amount of snails that you had to harvest, like thousands upon thousands, just to get a couple ounces of this, right? You didn't do this unless you had just a ton of money just to blow <laughs> on these thousands, right? So in other words, purple, scarlet. These are the clothing, these are the colors of royalty, of luxury, right? She's decked out in gold, jewels, pearls, right? The whole thing. Okay, but here's the thing, right? The issue here is not, not, not the wealth and the luxury, right? Or, or I should say this, it's not the wealth and the luxury and the glamour and the splendor which is arousing God's judgment. That's not necessarily the problem. In fact, We'll see there in like a week or two, we're going to come to this next city, the city of Jerusalem, the heavenly city that's coming down. And this city is going to similarly be described as radiant from jewels and gems and golden streets and all that. So it's not necessarily here that wealth and luxury and splendor is the problem that's arousing God's judgment. Probably fair to say that what we could, the more the issue is how that wealth and luxury and splendor was acquired. Right, The closing line of the passage is that in her was the blood of the saints and the blood of all those who'd been slain on the earth, uh, which is probably hyperbole or it's probably symbolic. For in her was the blood of all those who'd just been bowled over and trampled in her reckless pursuit, her uninhibited pursuit of wealth at all costs. Right, the thing about the Roman Empire, if you ask the question, like, why, why did Rome just keep expanding and keep conquering new territories and new lands and new kingdoms? Well, there's maybe a lot of reasons to answer that, but one of the reasons could be, well, the more land you conquer, the more people you have to tax, right? So that you can have more money flowing into Rome, so you can build up your military edifice or whatever, or funnel money into your leaders and all that. But it was also, the more land that you conquer, the more goods that you can take and use part of the Roman Empire. All right, so if you see a territory over there that's got, man, these awesome oak trees, right, which you can build luxurious palaces with or whatever, well, I could pay the price that the locals want to charge me for their trees, or I could just come in and take over the land, and then I can take the, take the trees myself and give, give them whatever 
payment I want to give them for it. Right? Or if some other territory has rich gemstones or whatever, which would go great, uh, right, in this new palace that I'm building or this new home, well, I could pay their price to mine it, or I could just go over and take over that land, take it myself, and give them whatever I want. Right? It's like if the United States all of a sudden decided, hey, these inflated gas prices are killing us. <laughs> right? These Middle Eastern countries are are bleeding us dry because they know the oil supply is a little slim right now with this whole war going on in Russia and Ukraine, and so these inflated prices are going to kill us. So uh, let's just go take over one of these Middle Eastern countries so that we could get that oil for ourselves and we could take it back and pay whatever we want for it and give them whatever, whatever we want, right? That's part of the issue here. It's this acquisition of goods and resources and wealth just kind of bowling over you know, the local people on the ground. This is why seafarers, right, the ships, ship captains are mourning as they see this city go down in flames, right? Because this is how they got really rich, right? All all this stuff from these conquered lands had to all make it back to Rome. And so that's what the ship, ship guys came in, right? They would load up their ships and they would sail it back to Rome and they would get paid handsomely for this. So now who's going to buy all this stuff? Or the merchants, right, who would then take the goods as they were coming off of the ships and they would sell it to the people or they would deliver it to the royalty and get paid handsomely for it. Right now, how's that going to happen? Well, they often say that Rome was built uh, as much on the merchants as it was on its military, right? Because part of the... And then here's the other part. The kings stand off and they weep and mourn, right? Because the kings... You know, they usually had this arrangement with Rome. Rome could come to some king in some foreign territory, and they would say, hey, look, we can we can do this the hard way, or we can do this the easy way, right? Hard way is I could come in, we can bring our troops in here, and we can lay waste to this territory and just take over and do whatever we want. Or you can just hand your territory over to us, and here's the deal. We'll make you shareholders, in the wealth of Rome, you, the king, right? We'll, we'll, we'll treat you well for this, right? You just align yourself with Rome. You've devoted allegiance to us. You hand over your territory. We'll make you shareholders in the luxury and the prosperity of Rome. Meanwhile, the people on the ground are going to suffer because their land and their resources and their goods have just been handed over to the Roman Empire, right? So that's probably more of the picture here. It's wealth acquired, acquired by any means, including injustice, Right? Or if to put it in modern lingo, it's this, I, well, don't read it politically, but just in modern lingo, it's this increasing divide between the haves and the haves nots. Right? It's this idea that if you have power and you have wealth, you're probably pretty well set up to increase on that versus if you don't have power and you don't have wealth, it's going to be more difficult, especially if, <laughs> Some of the wealth of the powerful is coming at your expense. Now you don't have any resources or any means to defend yourself or hold up against yourself against it, right? And now we're getting a little bit closer to what's starting to poke at God's wrath, right, and his judgment. That's why you have all throughout, you know, the Old Testament, these weird economic practices, right, when God says, hey, when you give a loan to your brother who's in need and needs help, don't charge interest. Because the name of the game here is not to increase in your wealth off the backs of your brother and sister who's having a difficult time. Or, for instance, uh, 
you know, if your neighbor sells to you a portion of their land because they've fallen on hard times and they need money to feed their, their family, okay, fine. Sell them or, or, or right, pay for some of that land. But it's not yours in perpetuity. Right? It's not yours to just to take and own and then to pass on to your kids who are then going to pass on to their kids and so forth. No, every 49 years or every 50 years, you're going to have the year of Jubilee where the land goes back to its original assignments. Stuff that is like, well, that's just weird. Who does that? Unless you're looking at it from the perspective of God saying, yeah, first of all, let's get one thing straight. It's not your land. It's my land that I am giving to you out of my generosity and out of my graciousness. And here's my heart, that all of my people would enjoy the blessings and the resources that I've created for them. So yeah, you don't gain in wealth off the backs of my people. Or yeah, whatever you take from them is not yours into perpetuity. It goes back. This is part of the heart of God. This is why you get like when you get into the New Testament, you get in the book of James, right? You get these passages where James is... I don't know, like it's kind of scary, like where he's, he's railing against the rich and he's saying, weep and moan, you rich. Not because they're rich, but because the cries of the harvesters or the cries of their laborers who have been exploited for their own gain are crying out and are reaching God's ears. And God's not going to stand for that. So that's part of the issue here. It's not the acquisition, it's not the wealth. It's how that wealth was acquired. And then the last thing, the kickers, right? So it's, it's a wealthy city. It's a wealthy city that has grown in wealth off the backs of the beast, the back of the beast, right? Through unjust means. And then maybe the last kicker is, uh, what you see in verse seven. She glorifies herself and lives in luxury, right? Again, it's that idea that she is exalting herself as the thing of supreme value thing of supreme importance, cares very little to give honor to the Creator, and instead chooses to live her life in full-on pursuit of her passions, her desires for glamour, wealth, luxury, whatever it is. Right? It's, in other words, it's this, it's this arrogance, this pride, that my, that my life and my desires and my passions are worth supremely above anything else. Or she goes on to say, I'm a queen. I'm no widow. I'm not going to mourn. I'm not going to grieve. Right? This is also her having, I don't know, elevated confidence in this wealth, in this power that she has secured for us. In other words, I think the kicker is, and I think this is why you find in Mary's song why there is this connection between the proud and the wealthy, or the proud and the mighty, right? It's those two things that Mary rails against. You have brought down, you have scattered the proud in their thoughts, and you have brought down the mighty from their thrones. You have fed the hungry with good things, and you have sent away the rich empty. There's like this connection oftentimes in Scripture between the proud and the mighty, or the proud and the wealthy. And that's what you see in Babylon. In her pride, she's exalted herself. And in her pride, she's lived in full pursuit of her lusts and her passions, not caring which purposes of God she violates, or which people she has to mull over in the process. And her trust and her confidence is in this power and this wealth that she has secured for herself. All right, and so it's these three things all put together. The wealth at a cost and the pride, which embodies the whole thing that has stirred up God's judgment. And this judgment is going to come. This judgment is going to be Swift 
and exhaustive. Right, The line that comes off of the lips of the kings and the seafarers and the merchants is in an hour, kind of like in an instant. Right, The king looks and he stands off and he weeps and he mourns because in an hour judgment has come against this city. Where the ship captains, well, I'm sorry, then it's the merchants next. And the merchants, they stand by and they weep and they mourn. Because all this wealth that was acquired in this city, all this wealth that over time had just been built up and they had profited from, in an hour, it's laid waste. And then the ship captains come in and they look at the city and they weep and they mourn because not only is the wealth gone, not only is the judgment come, but the whole city, in an hour, has been laid to waste. All that they had spent their lives accumulating, all that they had spent their lives in pursuit of, in an hour, gone. So then you get the angel come, describes it again. Yeah, it's just basically like throwing this giant millstone into the sea. Done. Gone. And it's exhaustive. That's the other part, right? The angel says, you listen and you don't hear anymore. The trumpeters. You don't hear anymore the flutists, flutists, whatever, right? You don't hear the musicians. You don't see the artists. Art is gone. Beauty is gone from the city. Or you don't see the craftsmen working at their crafts in the trade. Or you don't hear the sound of the mill, right, working in there, grinding down the wheat and the flour. Right, the economy, the business, the life is gone. Or you don't see the lights, right, the, the, the lamps that are providing light and warmth in the homes in the evening when families are gathering together just to enjoy one another or whatever. Gone. You don't hear any more sound of bride and bridegroom, right? The joy of marriage relationships or the joy of uh, wedding celebrations. Wait, all gone in an instant. And so the way the kings... Whether you're the seafarers or whether you're the merchants, you just stand by and you see the smoke and you weep. All right, so that's the picture. All right, and so the question is then, well, all right, so what do we do with that? How do we take that? How do we apply that? Okay, because if it is the case that right, Babylon is not just one historical character but is symbolic of these worldly cities, these worldly cultures, these worldly empires throughout history, Okay, we don't stand immune from that. So what do we take from this? How are we supposed to see this and respond? And basically, I'll just say, well, there's two imperatives in the text. There's two commands that come. First one is in verse 4, where it says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. Okay, Come out of the city. city's about to be judged. Get out. Uh, we've got you know, little Georgia and Jeffrey at home these days. Um, and they're only like 11 months apart. All of our other girls, they, they were never that, that close. So George and Jeffrey, what do they call it? Irish twins, right? They're only 11 months apart, which is great. They're like best friends, but they're also thick as thieves, right? And, and, and they play on each other and they stir everybody up. And so sometimes over, well, not sometimes, more often than not, it's just sheer craziness over there unless they're sleeping or watching, uh, Peppa Pig or something. Otherwise, they're running around and it is just sheer craziness. And it's kind of fun to watch. And they're just going until you can hear, like down the hall, you know, something falls over, something breaks, or you hear somebody scream, somebody got hurt. And then just on cue, you can hear like the footsteps coming running down the hall because whoever was not the culprit is getting out of there fast. <laughs> And they're coming to find us to give us their rendition of the story, right? Because they have this sense that judgment is coming. 
I think that's part of the picture here. Get out of her because judgment is coming. You know, or maybe it's a little bit more like, um, you know, the, the whole Sodom and Gomorrah episode. Where God is coming to pronounce judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah that has built her life and her economy and her wealth on a complete disregard for God and his purposes. And so he's coming in judgment. He has found no one of righteous character. And so he's coming to lay waste to the city. And so he tells Abraham, go get Lot, go get Lot and his family and get them out. Tell them, get out of the city because judgment is coming. Right? And you remember the scene. They're leaving the city and Lot's wife, she does what she's told not to. She turns back. I don't know why she turns back. Maybe she turns back because it's unbearable to see this city that she had enjoyed and she had prospered from being destroyed. Or maybe she's looking back at the things that uh, brought her so much joy and fondness in life or whatever it is. And she sees it going around and she turns around and then and she receives God's judgment as well too. Right? That's probably more the picture. Like, come out of the city. So there's the one command. So the question maybe then becomes, well, okay, so what are we supposed to do with that? Are we... Are we supposed to sell all our property and put our money together and buy some island in the Caribbean and go set up our little Christian commune out there? Which, by the way, doesn't sound all that bad. You could probably talk me into it if you want. But I don't think that's necessarily the picture here. I think more of the picture here is this idea of coming out from her right, in a spiritual or a mental or an emotional way. Or more specifically, it says, come out from her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. Right? It's to create some sort of distance, some sort of separation Right to disavow your allegiance and your devotion to this, so that you have no part in her sinfulness. Right, so you have no part in the pride and the arrogance that would dare to set themselves up as the most glorious thing in all creation. This pride and arrogance that says, "My passions, my desires, far outrank whatever intentions or purposes the Creator would have for His creation." Right, come out from that, or come out from. This life that is lived in full-on, reckless pursuit of wealth at all costs. Right? This pursuit of wealth and luxury and glamour that's willing maybe to cut corners or to step on people's toes as you're climbing the corporate ladder at work so you can get the next pay raise or whatever it is. Or this reckless pursuit of wealth that is willing to maybe, I don't know, get into bed with unjust schemes. Or maybe this pursuit of wealth that is you know, willing to invest your money in shady and sketchy uh, corporations that take advantage of impoverished people around the world or just wreak havoc and destroy and God's good and beautiful creation. I don't, I don't know what. Right? Or it's come out from this idea of living in this reckless pursuit of wealth all the while having little regard for those around you, having little regard perhaps for your family, spend all your time at work. Or maybe you have little regard for your church family, right? You can't possibly spend time in corporate worship or in grace groups or whatever because there's money to be made. Or even just simply living without regard for your neighbors or those around you who, in their poverty, they tug at the heart of God. Right? I think of uh, Paul's letter to, uh, to Timothy, you know, he's writing to Timothy, and he gives him instructions for, you know, how he should care for the people under, under his care. You know, and as he's giving him instructions for people in his church, he then closes out his first letter by saying, and as for the rich, which, again, uh, implies there's going to be rich among you. Again, wealth and richness is not the problem here. I think it was Charles Wesley who said, 
Look, at the end of the day, if you're living your life out of a Christian life and worldview, it's quite possible you're going to acquire wealth, right? It's quite possible you're going to have a good work ethic because you work to honor your creator. It's quite possible you're going to uh, treat people with love and dis- dignity and respect, and, and this is going to be honored and it's going to be rewarded with wealth, right? So wealth is not the problem. That's how you approach it, how you do it. And so he writes with them, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be proud and haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous themselves as a good foundation, oh, sorry, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, that's part of the seductive power of Babylon. Babylon says that the pursuit and the acquisition of wealth at all costs, that is what true life is. And Paul's saying to Timothy, man, shepherd and care for your people in such a way that they see true life is found. And yet, receiving all the blessings that God would have for you, but then participating in his graciousness and his generosity and having regard for those around you and giving freely, that's truly life. Right, so I think that's something we take seriously. Come out from her. Come out from that whole way of life. Come out from that whole worldview, that whole perspective that exalts pride in this reckless pursuit of wealth and has no concern for others. Come out from that. I think it's a, it's a charge that we, we need to hear. We need to take seriously again because we talked about it last week. Right, We live presently in the greatest uh, joining of wealth and power the world's ever known. Right? Our wealth puts ancient Rome, well, maybe not, well, certainly our power puts ancient Rome to shame. I'm not throwing our wealth does too. Or even just you think about it, how even the poorest among us, right? The poorest 10% in America live better off, more financially prosperous than 70% of the rest of the world, right? We're swimming in a sea of wealth and blessing and prosperity. Again, not to say that that's the problem, but again, it's to say we need to hear this and we need to heed this because all of that, this is the point of the passage and it's the point of the whore on the beast. It's seductive. And it's addictive. And it feeds us lies. And that's why Jesus says, it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Not because wealth is a problem, but because it's so seductive and it's so alluring. Right? It seduces kings and merchants and seafarers. It tempts John, like we saw last week, to bow down almost in worship. Right? It's so seductive. It's so addictive. And it feeds us lies. It tells us this is where life is to be found. And it tells us this is where your security is. Right? As long as that number in the bank account is at a certain level, there's your security. You know you're good. Rather than entrusting yourself to the Creator, whose good pleasure is to care for you. Right? So we do well to heed this. Come out. Right? And then the other imperative uh, from the text actually comes at the end, uh, where he, where, oh, where is it? Oh, verse 20, where the angel says, Rejoice over her, <laughs> O heaven, and rejoice over her, all you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for, for you against her. Okay, so that's an odd imperative that we're supposed to look at this Drowning city, and as the merchants and the kings and the seafarers are all weeping and mourning, we're supposed to be rejoicing. But I think the part of the picture here, at least for us, is 
How did Mike put it? Sorry, what did you say, Mike? Hopeful anticipation? Where you at? Is that the, was that the word? Right? right? It's the sense that, that we are looking forward to this day where God is committed to making things right. And part of that making things right is purging from his creation. The creation that he retains ownership rights over, right? Again, he's from purging from this creation all that threatens the life and the well-being of the people that he loves dearly. He's going to make that right. You know, and the thing is that if you choose to live a life that exalts God above all else and honors him and chooses to live life in a reckless pursuit of him and his glory as opposed to reckless pursuit of your passions and your well right? You might be richly blessed by it, or you, you might not. And you might not have as much as those around you who in their pursuit are able to acquire more and more and more. Right, And maybe there are times where you look at that bank account because you've been so generous and so gracious the number is not quite what it is and you start to feel a little bit of uncertainty. The message here is that the day is coming when God is going to remove all threats, all hindrances, and we're going to be ushered into that glorious new Jerusalem which is full of lavish blessings. You need not worry. Right? Or we're moving from Babylon where the joy and the festivities of bride and bridegroom are heard no more to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right? This eternal feast of joy. In other words, you're, you're moving towards this day because of the lavishness and the graciousness of God. You're going to find yourself in a place where there will be no lack and want and emptiness will be sort of like essentially removed from the vocabulary. And so as you look forward to that, as we anticipate that with hope, as we sing songs of celebration, that's what frees you to live more generously in the here and now and to not to fear what might happen if I live more in pursuit of God than my own passions and desires. One more quote for you from the book of Hebrews. Basically sums this up nicely. He says, let us go to him who suffered outside the camp. Let's bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, he says, but we seek that city that is to come. And so through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice, right? Let's offer ourselves in sacrifice to him in praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, acknowledge him and his worth above our own. And then he goes on to say, don't neglect to do good or to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Right? You see his picture? Yeah, right now we have no enduring city. It's not a whole lot to entrust your life to, but there's a greater city to come. There's a greater city that we're coming. We're going to enjoy the full, uninterrupted, eternal presence of God who delights to give himself lavishly. And because of that, and because we wait for it in hope and anticipation, we can do good now. And we can share abundantly. We can offer our whole lives in sacrifice to God and to other people because he will care for us. And maybe there's where I'll close it and say, you know, one other thing about the Advent season. Well, I go back to that big picture. Part of Advent is remembering, yeah, that the heart of God is unsettled because there is injustice and oppression and violence and greed that is wreaking havoc in his creation. He has entered into the world to begin the project of reclaiming that, and he will one day bring that to completion. Right? But part of Advent is acknowledging that brokenness, acknowledging that darkness, seeing the heart of God for those who suffer. And then maybe also doing what 
God does entering into that and maybe taking an opportunity to share and to give and to sacrifice in love for those who suffer or those who are hurting or whatever it may be. That's part of what Advent is about. You know, I often find this conflict between the Advent and the Christmas season. They're one and the same, right? But, you know, Christmas is just this flurry of activity, the Christmas season, right? Because you're getting ready for Christmas, which is coming. And not only that, but it's that time of year where we try to cram in all of our traditions, right? All the movies that we want to see. And we have our little places that we go up into the city because some of these blocks are all decked out in lights and whatever, right? In other words, it's, it's the time we try to cram into this one month everything to squeeze the most out, this most wonderful time of the year. And I get that. Part of that is because centuries ago, or not even centuries ago, but the, but the churches in Advent made it part of their intent to take this darkest time of the year, the winter solstice, and infuse it with light and beauty. Right? And so, yeah, it's a time to soak that in and to remember there is light in the midst of this encroaching darkness of the winter season. Right? But then there's also this Advent portion of it which says, yeah, but as you are taking in that light, don't forget the darkness all around it. And don't forget to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn and enter into that with the love of Christ and give of yourself sacrificially for their sake. And so I would maybe challenge you, take advantage of the Advent season. Look forward in anticipation and hope. Celebrate what is yet to come because of the graciousness of God on our behalf so that maybe we can live more freely now and maybe choose to feel something of the heart of God. Right? See the hurt, have that unsettledness, and maybe move towards it in some way, in some love, in some sacrificial care. And all the, do it all the while remembering this is exactly what your Savior did. This is what Christmas is all about. Because God was so passionately concerned about you, and his heart was so unsettled for your sake, he left the glories of the heavenly city to become and to be born into this broken world, so that one day he may lead you to that glorious eternal city. And so until that day comes, may he lead us in the freedom of doing good and being living lives of generosity as he has first shown to us. And we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.